Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with the long-suffering Teos Avedia. <laughs> hey Teos, thanks for coming back uh, after a couple of weeks without me. You know, I missed you, man. I really did. Uh, yeah. It was, it was, yeah, it was kind of funny. I was like, oh man, like, like I feel like there's been show because I like listened to you record two episodes and then I record an episode without you, and I'm like, I miss my Shondos. So. Yeah, well, it's it's been almost a month, so we are back. We are better than ever. We are going to talk a lot of role playing games and D and D. Indeed, you like doing that? Oh, I I love that. All right, I love it much. Let's get to it then. It is going to start with our listener corner, with several questions that have piled up in the interim. First, being from Kurt Ogle. 4576 via YouTube. And Kurt asks, do you have GM tools and tricks that you might recommend regarding emphasizing and reinforcing tone? And the question goes on, but I want to stop right there for a second mm -hmm. and say tone is one of those words that means different things to different people. Often it's used synonymously with setting, with mood, with theme, with atmosphere. But technically, tone is the creator's relationship to their own work, to their own content. So if you think of the phrase, I don't like your tone, it's not talking about what the person said. It's talking about how they said it. Mm. So it's more about the delivery than the content. So if you tell a very grandiose story, uh, or a simple story in a very grandiose way, your tone is sort of sarcastic. Mm. You recognize the fact that it's really not a huge story, but you're telling it like it is. So that's sort of like the mock epic, like Ulysses uh, yeah. by James Joyce. If you tell a like a terrible, dark story, but use a humorous tone, we might call it dark humor or gallows humor. Right. That's that's the tone, right? That's the relationship between the person creating and that content. So the question I think is asking more about mood or atmosphere or even theme than right, the theme. than tone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so let's talk about that. Uh, setting a tone, clear tone. This is the rest of the question. Setting a clear tone for a game overall scene location or situational mood can help guide character role play that helps capture the theme setting and genre of the game in a satisfying way in games with heavy player investment before a scene my players and i often indicate the tone we're going for before we jump in and it has created wild levels of immersion and drama so you know kurt asks this question and then sort of answers it yeah uh because tone and mood and atmosphere is something that you want to set as an expectation with your players beforehand. And then you can work toward reinforcing that or diverge from it in surprising and fun ways. Uh, did you want to add anything there? Yeah, I mean, I think we can look to 5e products to see examples of where tone or, you know, this kind of general concept uh, both works and doesn't work, right? So, like, I think a, one that really stands out to me is Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. When we were told by the initial kind of marketing waves, right, it was all about how it's like the thing and it's 
uh, horror and, and being alone in the ice kind of concept. And then, you know, you, you sit down and you look at the first session you're going to run. And one of the options is sort of like find the missing Chewinga, which mm -hmm. is cute and not yeah. really horrifying. Right. And it's a, a fun scene, totally great. But if what you're going for is that particular tone, then you may want to adjust it. Now, the other uh, option is a little more along those lines. And so that can that can work that way. And, and, and it can be great to have both options. But to the extent that the tone you're driving at is a particular one, then you want to go that way. Right. Or uh, one that I like to play with a lot in my games is when someone uses some sort of divination. You can tailor that to the campaign world. Right. You can mm -hmm. uh, or even you're handing out magic items like in, in, in dark sun, I had um, sort of shriveled dried fruit that someone gave that was a potion of healing. And it had come from, from this particular sort of sage like character. And when, and not only was it this sort of like, you know, kind of nasty old, not nasty, but it was, it was looked old and withered, right? Like it, like it was barely clinging to being a fruit, which is very appropriate for a dark sun setting. And when you mm -hmm. ate it, not only did you get its restorative effects, but you got a sort of vision of either the past or the future related to your character and so that kind of thing you know was just a simple way for me to remind you you're not in a place that just has liquids sitting around in bottles right it's got to be in some other form and that's and the whole world is different so here's some differences to how a potion works right and then that that establishes that yeah for sure that's the that was going to be my second point which is the details that you use will help set the tone and, you know, like you, your potion example is a perfect example, right? A potion of healing in one campaign can be much different than a potion of healing in another campaign. And, you know, think of imagery or symbolism in stories, mm -hmm. right? It's it's setting that expectation of everything that we say is going to come back to these images and these themes. And so just, just think in terms of those details and... Also allow your players to experiment with their own themes. Even if you say this is going to be a horror game, you can let things, you know, keep coming back to those themes, but let things play out in, in sort of a different tone or a different atmosphere uh, just to alleviate the heavy heaviness of a tone. Because if it's the same beat over and over and over and over again, you can lose the story in that. So to give a contrasting atmosphere or a contrasting theme or tone right. can be helpful in reestablishing exactly where your campaign or your story or your adventure is within that tone. Though the, There are times, right, and I think DMs struggle with this, like you're trying to do that epic moment, you know, in the big battle, and the players are just kind of cracking silly jokes, and you're like, that's not what your characters would be doing, right? And and that can be hard. And so it can be worth talking to players sometimes and saying like, hey, let's have a blast. And 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 there are times, like if you think of like the D&D movie or Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, there are times when things are, the chips are down, but you can crack jokes. But there's certain kinds of jokes because you are still focused on the mission. Mm -hmm. You are still worried about what's going on. And But players sometimes just step out and forget about what's actually happening at the yeah. table, right? And that's when it can be worth correcting that to have that tone mesh a little more closely. Right. Assuming that's what you want. Assuming mm -hmm. that's what the players want. Right. And and that's what I mean about tone being the, the delivery rather than the content. Because you can run a dark 
horror Ravenloft gothic campaign where what the characters are going through is dark, but what the gameplay is is comedy. And that's that's totally fine as long as that's what you and your players want. And so that's why a tone can be the the atmosphere and the tone can be two very different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Next, we have MD Black Rabbit via Mastodon saying, as game designers working with RPG systems with classes, what considerations do you make in terms of creating a new class versus a new subclass for an existing one versus having a player simply multi-class for variations of playable characters? I ask for those DMs that allow or create homebrew items for their players, and it would be val- it would be valuable to understand some of those considerations to maximize the play experience as intended. Now, I'm going to let you go first on this, Mateus. Well, I, I'm no expert, but I'll, I'll start with one that just stuck into me as I was reading it, which is that idea of multi-class. And, and multi-class is an interesting one because... If you look back at sort of different editions of D&D, you can see how well or poorly certain concepts catch on. So in third edition, um, multi-classing could tell a much broader story. And like it really felt like story versus mechanical outcome. Um, and, and it was more obvious to the person. And I'd say in older editions as well, right? So like being a fighter thief or being a uh, wizard thief, you know, those things had a, a sort of resonance to them that that stood out during play. It's a little less obvious what your character is in more recent editions. Um, and that's worth keeping in mind around multi-classes. Can you create that feel? The other thing is that multi-class often has rested upon something else that wove it together. So third edition is, is a great example of this, where if you were a rogue and a wizard, and then you took arcane trickster, suddenly your theme really, really cemented together. And it was very different than choosing Arcane Trickster as a rogue subclass. Um, same thing with something like the Arcane Archer, right? Like just these were way more tangible. They had a lot more mechanics that baked in and created that theme. And, and so that's worth considering whether whether the, the player will get enough out of that concept when you're going through multi-class. Class versus subclass. That, I think, from my perspective, a new class occurs very seldomly because it has to carry so much thematic weight that it really needs to be its own concept to stand. And, it, and it's hard to do. Like, think of how few wizard classes or spellcasting, arcane spellcasting classes there have been over the years, right? The warlock, right? The sorcerer. There's not a lot else that's worked because just trying to add something else to that, you end up back at saying, well, that's kind of really close to this with a little bit of story to it, right? What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, coming at it from a different angle, but making the same point is in class-based role-playing games, the classes are there because they represent to the player ways that their character will see the world and interact with the world in in the story, but interact with the game in terms of the mechanics. So if a player comes to me and says, I need, I want to use this other subclass or I want a new class. My first question is why? What do you want to do? What in the current system is not allowing you to interact with the story or the world in terms of, right, uh, 
in terms of the rules, in terms of the story that you can't do with a background, that you can't do with a feat, that you can't do. And, and if they really have something that's important to them, that the game's current rules aren't doing, then we can talk about it. For me personally, though, if it's, well, I'm a wizard, but I don't like getting hit. So I want a subclass that gives me a higher armor class. Then I'm like, no, Uh, right. The game is there. That's the trade-off in the game. So that for me is sort of the most important question. What does the player want from these classes? And if it's something that, if it's something that's reasonable and that makes sense for the game I'm running, we'll find a way to do it. Maybe it is make a whole new class, but maybe it's just find a way to tweak the current rules uh, and, and move forward from there. Yeah, and and thinking a little more about additions, you know, 4E was easier to have classes in, right? So you had things like the Battlemaster or the Warden, and they could all be different types of defenders, right? And, and tanky mm-hmm. characters. Because that really could work to express itself that way. It was a lot easier to make a scion. And, and you see when D&D has played with like making a, a scionicist type class, it's, it's had trouble doing so. Because even when you say that it's different, you run into, well, but don't, don't I end up wanting to mimic what spells already do? So am I just using a spell list? And, and, and even the D&D designers have trouble with that. And, and it really is based on, on the architecture of the edition. So, yeah, if, if you're just if you know if you're designing is one question for for many people that's, that's a lot harder consideration. If you're doing it for a home game, then I agree that you first still want to ask, do I really need this, and can the character get what they want in a different way? Um, but but at the same time, you have that latitude of building something custom just because you think you should. Uh, the gunslinger is maybe a great example of a five E version, right? Where where Matt Mercer's gunslinger does carry a different, very different theme. And it can have its own mechanics right around the, the, the use of these types of weapons and how that works and what's going on and the larger concept of powers that then can be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, we get a question from Michael Phillips via Mastodon. He says, you said a thing about wizards deciding to use people's creative commons material being bad press for them. And that feels very unfortunate because part of why the creative commons exists was to encourage that sort of thing. If you're under a CCBY license, you're putting stuff out there with the hopes that other big companies are going to pick up your material because they're also going to credit you for it. And that very very well may be true. That doesn't change the fact that Wizards has to be very wary of public perception, not just among their players, but their fans, the investors in Hasbro, just the general public. Uh, they could do everything perfectly legally. They could do it to with the best of intentions. They could even do it in a way that multiple people benefit. But if one person out there says, look, wizards stole my thing and they didn't pay me or they didn't give me enough. And I know that the Creative Commons license legally takes care of that. But we're in a post-truth world if you haven't noticed. <laughs> and there's there are plenty of folks out there on social media, bloggers, reporters, whoever, who are just waiting for the next screw up from Wizards, whether it's perceived or real, 
to get their clicks, right? To get the clickbait going, get the outrage going. And so while legally wizards would totally have the right to do whatever they wanted with that material, that's as long as it's covered by that license, it may not make sense for them in a public relations manner to do so. Yeah, and, and I think wizards, uh, they want to feel like they are the number one design shop out there. That may or may not be true, and you, you know, we, we can all disagree on to what extent they are or aren't. But that is a feeling that they want to cultivate, and it can make sense to do so from a marketing perspective. And, and so they want to feel like their work is official, it's premier, that their designers are the best. And the more that they were to rely on someone else's random work that pulled, pulled from different sources, the less it feels that way, right? It feels like, well, anybody can create if Wizards is making their stuff official, right? Then, then what separates them from us? Nothing, right? So maintaining that illusion of it, whether it's an illusion or not, you know, you can decide makes some business sense, right? To, to say our stuff is, is at a different level. And in fact, it does usually go through steps that other companies work or freelancers work, uh, independent creators work does not go through and through a level of perspective and years of analysis and so on that's different. So it, it should be different. But, but there's both that reality and perception. And I think that perception carries a ton of weight. Mm-hmm. For sure. And the last question. Oh boy, I have to say this. From... Tejas Kudva two five four three via YouTube. I'm so sorry. I went that to Gumshoe. Two thousand five hundred forty two oh. other Tejas Kudvas existed beforehand. I, I, That's how yeah, it works, right? It must be a common name. Yeah, it was a good year for that name <laughs> at one point. Apparently, mm-hmm. uh, I went to Gumshoe hoping to fix my lack of competence with mystery adventures. I found that the mechanics mimicked stuff I did as a GM anyway. Although mechanizing the automaticity of clues, the automatic nature of clues and the resource management of extra information discovery was cool. But my main problem seemed to be exacerbated by the system. Namely, I'm terrible at writing good mysteries. And Gumshoe, even more than other adventures, really relies on the game master making a story with a really solid spine and needs cool information for those investigation spends to uncover. Published adventures were great, but even trying to follow their advice, I found my session prop when trying to write my own scenarios was long and untimely, or an ultimately kind of a failure. Maybe a better question then is what are some good resources for writing a mystery? Mm. Cheos, take it away. Uh, it, it's hard. Uh, this is a hard thing. And, and, and I, I think everybody to some extent struggles with this, but there are some good examples out there that you can emulate. And so a good thing to do is, is steal from what you see uh, that does work, that does it well. Um, two things I'll mention uh, quickly. One of them is, is my own, and I apologize for that. But I, I really like, uh, or actually two, two that, that aren't mine, uh, Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh, right? At a very simple level, has that sort of feel to it of a mystery. And you start going through in a dungeon, it's sort of a dungeon mystery, right? What is this old house about? And it does so in a very pleasing way. And, and if you've run it, uh, it's kind of surprising how interested characters get in what's going going on and, and what this, this the sinister secret is. Um, the fourth edition adventure, Infernal Wrath by Logan Bonner, which you can find in Dungeon 205, available on DriveThru um, or DMs Guild. That adventure breaks each day into segments to limit how much clue finding 
players can do in a day, which then ties to things that are happening where every night there is a murder. So you get this sort of doling out of clues, uh, a sense of urgency. There's only so much you can look into, but you have a lot of freedom to look into things. That's a, a really neat structure to, to use. Uh, one that I did when I wrote and I borrowed heavily is in, in The Adventure of the Artifact, I emulate the board game Clue, right? And I make it very clear to the players almost at the start, you need to figure out who did it and with what item. And that will lead to the resolution, right? And that creates a nice mystery um, that, that everybody is very tangible. The goal is very obvious. And I think that's the main thing that Gumshoe's teaching you, right? Is whatever you come up with as, as your mystery and the structure around it, it needs to be very clear, right? People are getting murdered every night. You must figure out who did it. There's only so much looking you can do in a day, right? Those kinds of parameters are, are very helpful. You can look to movies and novels, but keep in mind that movies and novels often speak to the viewer or reader. And so those, that make, can actually make it hard to, to emulate them perfectly. So you've got to kind of adjust for that factor. John, thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, the gumshoe system is much like the 4E skill challenge system. Mm -hmm. And what they did really more than being revolutionary was just to force game masters to think about what they were running, the encounters, their adventures in a new way. So I will not apologize for pointing to my own work. Uh, I, I ran or I wrote a series of blogs for D&D Beyond called Let's Design an Adventure. And in that, I talked about designing encounters, but keeping different elements in mind for each encounter that you write. And three of those elements were, what do the characters know when they go into an encounter? What do the characters learn when they enter the encounter? And what is the goal of the encounter? And does that goal change within the encounter? So if you think, and there are several more elements, but I'm just going to stick with those three. So if you think about an investigation, the important part is the characters can get from point A to point B. That's the important thing. So that's what Gumshoe says. Don't And Gumshoe was basically trying to fix Call of Cthulhu. That's basically why <laughs> mm -hmm. it was written, to, to run Call of Cthulhu adventures without getting lost. So it's, boom, there's your clue. So you know you go from encounter a to encounter b great what are the other clues what do these other clues that you can find and that you can spend points on to learn why are they important mm -hmm. and how you can make those important is go to what i said and plan your encounters especially your following encounters with those clues in mind so what do the characters know going into an encounter can make that encounter much easier so if you say, all right, they go from encounter A to encounter B, encounter B is going to be difficult. But if they spend or if they make the check or if they do whatever, now encounter B is going to be a little easier because they know about the secret door. The secret door would then be something that they can either enter through or that they can watch out for that enemies may come through. Mm -hmm. They may learn that the person they think they're tracking as a witness is actually very dangerous. And they learn where that witness is with that first free clue. But the second clue points to the fact that, you know what, this witness, this person who I think is a witness who we're trying to question, 
is actually a very powerful mage. That's important to know. And so those sorts of things, you just have to sort of move backward in your design rather than forward. Forward is how do I get from A to B? Backward is what do I put in B that can be affected by what happens in A? Yeah. So those are the things. And, and that's hard to see in movies, in books, even in video games. But it's something that in game design, especially RPG adventure design, is something that you can do. And it generally, if you spend the time doing it, makes for much more varied and much more entertaining encounters yeah. in the long run. Speaking to that entertaining part, you know, if you think about like uh, Agatha Christie type murders, one of the funny things about them is, uh, and this is true of like the, the Knives Out series, anybody could have done it. Like, like at right. some, you get to some point in the book or the novel and the outcome can be almost random. And in fact, in the artifact, I made it random. Like you, you decide at the beginning of the venture, you can pick or roll to determine who's guilty, right? Because they all have reasons. That's why this is a mystery is because anybody could have done it. Right. And that kind of, I guess, Agatha Christie thing, the fun isn't in unraveling necessarily the truth because the truth is almost arbitrary, right? That's why you've set it up to be hard to figure out because it really could have been anybody. Uh, it's the interaction with those people. So, so a lot of your emphasis should be on those interactions that make it fun and give the players that answer. And that's the satisfaction of it is going through those discussions, going through those investigations, getting those clues, and then, you know, knowing that you did the right thing is, is the feel good, right? So, so focus on that aspect of it and less on whether it's an amazing plot. And scenes mm -hmm. can feel pretty open and still be hugely pleasing. Like there's an adventure out there and I forget what the name of it is, or I'd say it, but it's one of the early um, uh, season two or season one adventures league. That is a mystery. And I remember when I read it, I thought to myself, I don't know if this has a lot to it. And then in play, I was shocked at how the players were super engaged with just a few things in each of these mystery scenes where they'd investigate and talk to people and, and have a blast. Mm -hmm. And it partly it was because there was that investment done to give you enough detail and character to each of the, NPCs or places to make it interesting to interact with them. And that's all you need. Yeah. Yeah. And a, a whodunit is very different than a conspiracy mm -hmm. is very different than, you know, all different sorts of mysteries. And some are more likely to be, be played well in D and D because, you know, mysteries, mysteries are the detective failing over and over again until they have failed enough that they succeed, mm. right? They, they look at the crime scene and they don't get their answer mm. right. They just find a piece of an answer. And so mm. whodunits are tough in D&D, especially at high levels, when certain spells can just tell you whodunit. Uh, mm. So also the kind of mystery that you're trying to tell will be affected by all of this. Yeah. But it is a great question. And I hope our answers were at least somewhat helpful. And now we have some news to talk about, starting with the DMs Guild Design Dash. Uh, the Design Dash is a streamlined co or streamed contest run by the DMs Guild. A prompt is given, and the designers must come up with a design. They've ran they've run it a few times, but they are looking for designers to do it. And we have a link in the show notes where you can sign up to go on the show and do your thing. Yeah. Good luck if you go. 
Have you been on it, Taz? I was invited. I felt like I could only lose by going on it. I either either I'd win and I'd feel bad about winning because I'd feel like I've done a lot of design, like you know, in short pressure, or I'd feel like I lost and and why did I lose? <laughs> you know what I mean? And and and, yeah. and I and also just I don't want to take up a slot from someone else. Like someone else should be on that show. Yeah. So I think someone had canceled and they asked, "Do you want to be on it?" And I said, ah, "You know, I just sort of feel like." I don't need to be on this, but, but, um, but it is a fun, what I do like doing is listening to it. And, and I've, I've listened to several mm-hmm. episodes back when they were doing them more regularly where it is really fun to be like, okay, you know, you've got this bit of information, make an encounter, make an adventure, you know, that kind of thing. And it, it is pretty satisfying. That's a neat, neat way to quiz yourself, but I've got plenty of work. So I feel like I'm design dashing all day. <laughs> yeah. So that's the story of some of our lives. Mm-hmm. It's not a dash though; it's a marathon. The <laughs> <laughs> series of dashes. Uh, Big stable. Bad is exactly a series of one million one hundred meter dashes. Big Bad Con online has concluded, but you can see portions of that convention uh, on video. There are topics such as making games uh, for hard conversations, putting your best foot forward in industry meetings. Actual play technical production, say for games, uh, TTRPG creation from ideas to publication, join in the game industry from other walks of life and more. All of that is available on YouTube if you search on Big Bad Con online. And we also have a link in the show notes. Uh, I Big Bad Con is one of those ones that I want to get to. I haven't been able to yet, but Same. I'm hoping sometime soon. Uh, the Diana Jones has announced its emerging designer program finalists. We have names including Aaron Roberts, Anthony Joyce Rivera, Bashir Gauss, uh, Allison Saib, and others. A link on Twitter, if you search the Diana Jones Award, will tell you everything that you need to know. Fantastic. Uh, do you miss, Sean, the days when you were emerging? I I don't remember ever emerging. I am still in the fetal position under my desk. Someday I hope to emerge yeah, from that. Yeah. But no, yeah. it's 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 great that I wouldn't call some of those people I'm well aware of their work. Right. And they're they're emerged. They're fully emerged. They're incredible uh, you know, designers in their own rights right now. Yeah. But so emerged. We'll, yeah. we'll call them emerging. Why not? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So tell me about this uh, Wiz Kids board game. I mean, I I'm always shocked that there is yet another board game coming out by Wiz Kids, and here's another one. Trials of Tempest is a D&D party versus party game, competitive slash collaborative, meaning you collaborate with your team members, compete against the other team. So there are two teams of one to four players for two to eight total. If you, if my math is right. And you are rival parties of heroic adventures battling to prove your worth and metal in the ever-changing battle realms of Tempest God of War, which is, I think, how, how they're explaining that there's like a little kind of grid you're playing on. That is the battle realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an article on GameSpot which describes the challenge the designers faced in trying to keep it to under two hours with eight people, the inspiration for the game, and a lot of other angles like that. So you can read on it and see whether it fits your interest level. It is a link in our show notes. Game comes out in August. And it's uh, $100 or $200 for the version with painted WizKids minis. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the P versus P, especially party versus party mm -hmm. stuff. I know a lot of people have had fun with it over the years at conventions. They had all sorts of there were names for them that that are slipping my mind, but mm -hmm. it just if if you're using D&D rules, it just goes on for so long because characters are not meant to die in D&D. &D. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, but I mean, I assume these use different rules. So yeah, I think so. It'll be yeah. okay. But, but still, I, I, yeah, it's it still not super come in under two hours. Yeah, yeah. It's not my, my thing or, or my time frame for sure. But, uh, but uh, it's obviously a style of play that people do enjoy, but not as much as they're going to enjoy this next thing, Sean. I know. I was going to say, segue, I know something that Teos doesn't enjoy. He enjoys underwear, but not just any kind of underwear. D&D &D underwear. The company Swag, S-W-A-G, has D&D &D boxers available. Not a box set. Boxers. For only $15, you can cover your privates with ampersands. <laughs> and the art from the D&D &D Redbox set. Yeah. Yeah, Sean, if that doesn't I, complete your Tinder profile, I don't know what will. It it does. It does. I I now know what I'm going to be recording in from now on. Uh perfect for prom night, uh perfect mm -hmm. for that special anniversary with your partner. Mm -hmm. Um really yeah. there's so many applications to these. Uh, I I'd say tip of the hat to whoever designed the kind of subtle, subtle working of ampersands all throughout. I do think the box set image of the red box being on one side, I'd rather it be on both cheeks, but you know, it's still $15 a plus product. Mm -hmm. If this were just in target, we'd be at the baloney levels, but it's close. It's yeah. another try. Yep. It's, it's a specialized thing. It's not mm -hmm. worldwide that you could just go down to your local, you know, clothing store and, and grab them. But you know, if you're going to, you can't go commando unless you are uh, if you are wearing D and D uh, boxers. But speaking of commando, yeah. we have Rob Schwalb blogging about traditions and spells in his new game Shadow of the Weird Wizard. So we talked about Shadow of the Demon Lord a, a while ago. Rob is making a less dark and more fantasy version of the rules with some alterations called Shadow of the Weird Wizard, which he said would be kickstarting sometime late spring, early summer. And now he has a blog talking about how spells will, will work in this new game. And I'm going to hand it over to Teos to talk about that. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, if you recall our coverage of the RPG and these ideas of sort of like being a novice or a master, an expert. So there are those kinds of, of breakdowns for spells. So spells are grouped into flavorful traditions, and then they're organized into these tiers like novice. So you could pick up war magic, the tradition, as a novice, and you learn a starting spell. And then later you pick up expert spells and so on. Um, these spells have casting times built into them rather than this being a, uh, you know, standard rule across everything. Um, and you don't get um, a pool of spells like spell slots. Instead, you can say that spell will say, you know, you can cast it three times or once or whatever or all the time. Um, so that's kind of neat, you know, they're, they're differently balanced that way kind of into the system. Cause the idea is that you're not spell casting quite as much as you would in D and D it seems they give you several spell examples in the blog and they are every bit the evocative nature you would expect from Rob's work. 
One of the spells is called Break the Rules, and it's clearly Rob's version of Wish or Miracle. And uh, it's a fun. So I enjoyed the, the blog. Link is in our show notes or go to schwabentertainment.com. Yep. Still looking forward to seeing the final version of that. And last but not least, you've been getting around, Teos. That's all I had to say. We had we had Ben Don't on the show. Um, yeah. Ben Byrne was on a couple weeks ago and through a complicated trade worthy of the National Basketball Association. There you go, Mike Shea. That's our sports reference. Uh, we traded out and Teos took my spot on the Eldritch Lorecast while I was away. And how did that go? Did they did they take it easy on you or did they really let you have it? Uh, you know, a mix of both. We, we, uh, I thought I was getting there ready to record, but we chatted and then we recorded and then we chatted some more. We had, we were having a lot of fun. Um, and we talked all about the D and D summit. We talked some as well as tale about tales of the valiant, the, the new name for uh cold presses, black flag project. Um, it was, it was great. I, I loved being on there. I can see why you have so much fun and I always love watching you when you're on the, on the podcast. So that was great. Uh, and the link is in the short show notes or just search for Eldritch Lorecast and it'll come up. Um, mm-hmm. And then continuing the, the sort of uh, D&D Summit thing, I've, I've uh, posted my latest on alphastream.org on the virtual tabletop, which was one of the things we talked about on the show. So you can find that on my blog. And, and I've got at least one more piece in me on the uh, D&D Summit to talk about the, the rules update. Awesome. Looking forward to that. That takes care of our news. And now here on Mastering Dungeons, we are going to get into our main topic, checking out other role-playing games. In our continuing series, yes, Teos, you are holding up that beautiful, beautiful book called Dungeon World. And that's the game we're going to be looking at now. So we're looking at these other games as a reminder to compare and contrast them with D&D to show what they do that D&D doesn't, or maybe to show what they do that D&D does to help players and game masters get a feel for what is great about D&D and what can be gained from looking at other games to bring into your D&D game. And with Dungeon World, we are going to start by asking, what kind of game is this? Well, I'm going to start with this sort of summary about D&D. D&D is a game where players know what they can do. It says pretty explicitly on their character sheet what they can do. And the die roll tells them whether they succeed or fail. It's pretty standard. DMs, the same thing. They know what they can do. They know what their players can do. And... D&D is great, and it's very broad in its application. It can support a lot of different play styles. But it does, by design, forfeit a little bit of storytelling and free-form imaginative play because of the um, structure that the rules set on the game, especially in combat. So when I cover Dungeon World in my role-playing game class, the title of the lesson is melding mechanics and storytelling, which is what I think dungeon world does really, really well. Uh, I'm going to give you three quotes from the game. 
telling the players and the game masters what the game wants it wants them to do with it. One, playing Dungeon World means having a conversation. Somebody says something, then you reply, and maybe someone else chimes in. Two, as we play, the rules will chime in too. They have something to say about the world. And three, there are no turns or rounds in Dungeon World. No rules to say whose turn it is to talk. Instead, players take turns in the natural flow of conversation, which always has some back and forth. So those are the three things that the game says that it wants you to take from it. What are your thoughts on that uh, description? They're fascinating especially when you really start digging into the rules themselves and the character moves, uh, the, the game moves, because it really changes from the D&D expectations. Um, like the no turns around is really interesting. And it may just sound like, oh, it, it's abstract players, but it's more than that. It, it's It's the idea that it is really trying to drive play where, you know, the DM describes that initial scene and then how it goes from there, who knows, because people may say very different things. And as they say those things that their characters are doing, then that translates to, to a move, probably. And that move itself can trigger, the result of the move can trigger a monster doing something or not. But unless the DM feels that the monster, a monster must act, it's just the players acting. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so yeah. you, by default, aren't, you know, it's not like everybody goes and then I, then I, the DM or GM goes. It's, it's this sort of however the story goes. And mm-hmm. also that, and we'll get this when we talk about characters more, but the, it's not a game of heroes. It's got a lot of grit to it, both Dungeon World and especially Apocalypse World that it's based upon has this gritty feel to it that actually like I spent all weekend thinking about it as I was really kind of reflecting on this game that, mm-hmm. you know, you watch movies like the D&D movie or um, even Guardians of the Galaxy where ostensibly they're opposed to one another. But reality mm-hmm. is they're always working together. They're just giving each other banter. And that's very D&D-ish, right? We're all working towards a common goal. Here, it's more like one of those gritty shows where anybody could turn on anybody. That's the kind of play they're driving. And, and so it's very individualistic, even while being a collective, semi-cooperative game. Um, yeah. It's very, what do you want out of it? it it's really fascinating. So we'll, we'll talk more about these pieces, but those are like, at the high level. When I look at this game, I go, wow, it's really doing things fundamentally differently. Mm-hmm. Very true. We will get into a lot more about that in a moment. Uh, there's also, I wanted to mention that the GM advice that the, that the book gives the book asks the game masters to think of the game in these terms. When you sit down at the table as a game master, these are your tools. You describe the situation, you follow the rules, you make moves when appropriate, and you exploit your preparation. What is your agenda as the game master in Dungeon World? You are portraying a fantastic world, filling the characters' lives with adventure, and playing to find out what happens. 
And as we go through this, you will see that this is not just talk. This is no. not just, this is what we want you. It's they've designed the game to facilitate this. Did you have anything you wanted to say? The agenda part where it sort of says, you know, here's what you do as GM, I found a bit underwhelming and uninstructive. Like, like mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, yeah, well, what do I do as GM? And, and, and honestly, I find the same thing in Cypher System, where the instructions mm -hmm. to the GM are a bit like, you will respond to the players. It's like, cool, what am I doing? And, and it takes yeah. a while to really read through all the rules to sort of figure out what your role is as GM which isn't necessarily for everybody when when the players are driving that much action and you're in the back seat it it changes your role as well which is which is interesting mm -hmm. I, I i agree in that it's very vague but in this case it's true you just have to keep reading to figure out <laughs> how and why it's true yeah it's tucked uh, in around so all the other bits rather than right. being here's how you run a game so let's talk about the the designers. So it's based on the the game Apocalypse World, which was des designed by Vincent Baker in 2010, with a new edition being released in 2016. Uh, there have been several Powered by the Apocalypse games since uh, Vincent Baker made it free to use uh, the rules and adapt them. So Avatar: The Last Airbender, right? That huge multi million dollar Kickstarter uses powered by the apocalypse uh <laughs> and vincent baker gets nothing and that's okay because that's what he wanted yeah, and i hope vincent uh, baker never needs a uh gofundme for medical bills because exactly then, uh, then that opinion might change but uh but it, it is one of the reasons why in the indie world you see a lot of powered by apocalypse because it's a pretty interesting mm -hmm. fun indie style rpg that you can freely build off of as dungeon world did yeah uh, Monster of the Week is another game that's been out recently that people love that uses this. And we'll talk about why so many people have used it, not just because it's free to, to model on, but because you can do a lot of fun things with it. Uh, Dungeon World specifically was released in 2012 by Sage Latora and Adam Coble. Uh, it was a what they call a love letter to D&D. &D. So it's a pretty direct translation of D&D &D into the Powered by the Apocalypse system. Um, you can get the rules online for free at dungeonworldsrd.com. So those the, uh, that out of the way, let's talk about the game. It being a model of for of D&D, it has many of the things that D&D &D has. It has classes, it has races, but instead of sort of building your character piecemeal, you get what they call a playbook. And that playbook does give you some choices for what you want your character to be, but those choices are pretty slim. So if you want to be a fighter, you take the fighter playbook. Within that playbook, you can choose to be an elf or a halfling, or but it, it gives you just a little bit of difference between a human and an elf or a human and a dwarf small a small move you know one small power but that's it not these huge uh diverse changes that we see from 
building upon species in other games. The attributes are also like D&D. You have strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. And those scores in each ability translate to a modifier ranging from minus three to plus three. So things that are based on strength, if you have a high enough strength, you get that plus three. You will add three to your rolls uh, because of that. The special things that your characters can do within the game are called moves. And moves are what make Dungeon World and Powered by the Apocalypse games sing. Because each move is different. Each move specifies something that the game expects you to do. But within a move, there is a lot of storytelling ammunition. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not just succeed or fail. And There's a we... wide range. Before we dig deep into moves, one other thing that characters have is mm -hmm. bonds. And yep. and I find these fascinating. Like you can find them for Apocalypse World, like the, the characters, various characters available. And I think it's it's good to go back to those and, and how sort of fascinating they are. And there's a process in the game by which you go around and you take turns, you tell everybody tells each other their names and some basic information, right? You know, I'm a dwarf, my name's blah, you know, here's my class. And then you take turns and each character in their playbook has rules for how they create relationships. Uh, they're called bonds in, 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 in Dungeon World. Uh, they're called, I think, History, HX, in Apocalypse World. And like, Apocalypse World is really fascinating where it says things like, on your turn, tell everybody, hey, your relationship with me is a minus one, which means you don't know much about me. And, and this is important to go back and say, like the whole point of the bond uh, relationship kind of concept is, do you get me? Not do you like me? Not necessarily are we close, but do you understand me? Right. And so then mm -hmm. you then you so, so you tell everybody, hey, my default is, is you guys know me at minus one. And then uh, you choose um, when it when it's other people's turns you choose what someone says and you override it with your rules. So you can say, I watched you sleeping. And because of that, I have this huge relationship because I'm this sort of magical mental character, right? Uh, another one I've been studying very closely. So I also have this really close relationship and you can override other people's, what, what other people have said they, that you get for them. You can change that in secret, but then it will play out over time, right? And, and you will say yep. some amount of it up front so they kind of get a concept like, you know, hey, you've, you know, slept in my presence, you know, in a time when I watched over you and you can kind of create that story. And it's fascinating. Um, I do think it's a, a neat fodder for any D&D game to look at those rules and kind of think through that. But it really does reflect that gritty TV show where people can, can turn on each other. It also has a prominent feature of sex being one of the interplays between characters, which is obviously very uncommon in D&D um, from, you know, your generic group. Um, and so that's a big part of it. I mean, even baked into how characters work, uh, which is it's interesting. And you see some of that in Dungeon World, right? Yep. And as Teo said, bonds can have a score mm -hmm. and that score will come up in certain moves, even combat moves depending on how you're interacting, protecting, you know, whatever with, with individuals within your own party. And it gives so. you, it gives you experience points and apocalypse world is, you know, a true modern apocalypse, post-apocalyptic thing. 
And it has thing, examples of play where one character shoots another character in the face because they're mad at them. And this, they survive it through special features, but this changes their relationship such that you reach the four level and then you get experience for it. <laughs> it's like, yep. hey, everybody yeah. get experience. I just shot you in the face. I walk off, yeah. you live. You know, like, okay. <laughs> A little different. Yeah, and, but again, that's, that's you know, using... A, a mechanic to help tell a story and deepen a relationship, not necessarily for the better, but for the deeper. Yeah, it, it feels a little more like uh, if you ever wonder, like, you know, how could you make D&D have relationships between characters like you see in something like The Walking Dead? Well, here's how. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. So the the main uh, actions that you take in the game are called moves. Now, there are some moves that anyone can use. Some moves are very specific to a character's class or even a character's class plus race. Uh, many of the moves, when you roll to see how well you do with this move, is rolling 2d6 and then adding a modifier. So, for example, hack and slash is probably the most common move in Dungeon World. It is attacking something in melee. So the move says... When you attack an enemy in melee, roll plus strength. So it's two those 2d6 plus your strength modifier. Now, this move is emblematic and format-wise relevant to most moves in the game. So if you get a 10+, plus, you deal your damage to the enemy and you avoid their attack. At your option, you may choose to do an extra 1d6 damage, but expose yourself to the enemy's attack. So you're taking a risk. Maybe if I do this extra 1d6, I can actually defeat the enemy before they attack back. However, if I miss there, or if I don't, mm -hmm. they're going to be able to attack. So that's on a 10 plus. On a seven through nine, you deal your damage to the enemy and the enemy makes an attack back against you. And then obviously on a six or less, you miss. And that miss uh, can so have a detrimental effect, right? For sure. Um, so there are, that's just one move and there are many common moves. Volley is the ranged version of hack and slash. There's defy danger, defend, spout lore, discern realities, parlay, last breath, carouse, recover, make camp. End of session is a move. <laughs> level up level up is I mean. a move. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, you know, what's so, fascinating yeah. is, is that the, the game is trying to say, like level up is is obviously mechanically inspired like you reach xxp you can now use the level up move uh but even mm -hmm. like hack and slash what it's trying to get to is it's trying to say hey you know we're in the temple with these creatures and you go you know i'm gonna go run up and try to stop the three coming towards me you know with my axe okay that sounds like hack and slash do it but but that you it's trying to get the player to not say I go up to the goblin and I use hack and slash, right? Mm -hmm. It's trying to say, right. to the, the game is trying to say, you tell me what you do, and then we'll use a move that's appropriate. Um, and it's trying to inspire that not every round is hack and slash. Instead, that because mm -hmm. of the parameters of the situation, you might say, like, I'm going to try to hold them, right? I'm going to try mm -hmm. to tie them down so they can't get to the wizard that's dealing with the you know, arcane device. 
it's that kind of thing. And so it's, it's it, the idea is that you're not just sitting there doing hack and slash round after round. It's very interesting. Right. Yep. And it, it, uh, even the rules will try to give different, uh, different options so that it won't just be everyone hack and slash. And so that's why we get moves like defend. And it's also why we don't have initiative or turns. Yeah. So to spoil a little bit of the D&D movie, there's one scene where the barbarian is fighting a bunch of people and she's the only one really doing anything. Everyone, the other people involved are doing something different. Yeah. And that that could totally be a dungeon world scene where the fiction being set told is I am I'm the barbarian. I am trying I'm fighting the guards. There are four guards around you. All right, I I I try to to kick that one. All right, roll a hack and slash. Um the other character, are you doing anything? Well, I'm trying to escape my bonds. All right, well, do do this. Uh, defy danger oh nope you didn't all right okay this other thing happens what where are we now oh the barbarian you're still dealing okay and you, and the barbarian basically just keeps going and going and going and since the fiction of this particular scene plays to that the game master never has to really do anything yeah. unless the the unless the move that the character takes tells the game master all right now we have a situation where your move is that the monster gets to attack so the monster does its thing mm -hmm. and now what where does that leave us in our fiction right and and it, it always explains those scenes where yeah the, the foes never get to attack right they're constantly countered by the the player characters and it's because you know the player characters never rolled below a six so they never triggered the attack right or or maybe even didn't right. roll a seven to nine depending on the move they're taking and that's that's really yeah. interesting uh stuff and, and that it's worth saying i don't know if you said this you know, the 10 plus and the seven to nine those are staples that are kind of always there right they're not mm -hmm. move based they're or almost never they're they're you know it's what's expected from the game all the time and you're rolling 2d6 so you get that bell curve distribution. You tend to get the you know, numbers mm -hmm. in the middle. It's not uh, it's not like the D20 that can be completely swingy. It tends to get those middle numbers. And, and then you're adding your yep. bonus to that. So yep. that's interesting. Did you know, that, speaking of that, that a 7 plus would happen 58.3% of the time? Well, a 6 plus will happen 72.2% of the time. And say you're adding 2 to your roll. A five plus happens eighty three point three percent of the time. Hmm. So yeah. if you're if you have an ability that you that you get to add a plus two to eighty three point three percent of the time, you're at least going to hit that seven to nine range, um, where the story moves forward, but there may be some consequences or some tough choices that you will have to make or a complication that the game master gets to introduce into um, the game. Another thing I wanted to talk about with Dungeon World are the things that the game master needs to be aware of. And the first is monsters. Monsters in Dungeon World are going to be a little different than in D&D, mainly because the math is much simpler, but also because the game master doesn't roll attacks for monsters. Monsters 
either are reacting to something that the characters have done rolled a you know seven to nine so they get to attack or if the fiction says that the monsters just attack they just attack and there's no attack roll needed by the game master the characters may be defending but even if they're not actively defending then the monsters just hit Mm -hmm. so they just do a certain amount of damage but the monsters themselves have qualities and moves that rather than having a specific mechanical effect, have a more narrative effect. So in the show notes, I have the crocodilian, which has the special special qualities of amphibious and camouflage. So those things are inherent in the monster and fit into the story that's being told by the game master and the players. And then they have things like it's really, really, really big crocodile, seriously so big. That's, that's that's another the actual aspect text. of it. Yeah. yeah. And uh the its instinct is to eat. So if it if it's its turn to act and nothing's stopping it, what's it going to do? It's going to eat. And generally that means it's going to eat the characters or something that the characters are around. Um, it's best at attacking an unsuspecting victim, escaping into the water, and holding something tight in its jaws. There's no role for this. It's just this is what it does. Unless the characters are defying danger, defending, or doing something to stop it from doing what it does as a monster. Um, And I love that simplicity of everyone sitting around, nobody's saying what they're doing. Well, the crocodilian knows what it's doing. It's biting you. And here's the damage. Now, what do you want to do? You still get to stand around because guess what the crocodilian wants to do? It wants to eat you and you haven't said anything. So here we go again. Um, there's an and example. so that, that's what, yeah, go ahead. As you say, there's an example in play where I think goblins fire arrows and, and the idea is that they're kind of arcing up into the air and the players can choose to do something about it and they don't. So then they come down and hit one of the characters because nobody tried to dodge it or block it or whatever, but they could mm-hmm. have. Right. And so it was, it, it it was there as a as a fiction piece because that's what these goblin archers do, but up to you to decide what to do about it rather than just being an attack roll or you know a dexterity save or something like that. And that's very interesting. Right. Yeah, it's it's totally what the game expects as a story. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in in a game of D and D, what would happen? The the goblins would shoot, and the game master would okay, everybody. I know that what your armor class is, so I'm going to roll the attacks. With this, it's what do your characters do as these arrows are in the air? Uh, And if that, if what you do in the fiction corresponds with a move, then we'll move to look, use that move. Um, And if it's not, then we will take the best estimate of what it is. And that's, it will play out according to what the story demands that it, it does and to sort of reflect that there's a, a rule for grouping monsters where if several monsters are attacking you you get to add uh damage rather than than you're not expressing all of the damage you're taking the biggest one and then adding for each additional monster involved you're adding one to the the damage right so it's really just one thing hits you plus the other the number of others involved mm-hmm. and there are obviously like rules for damage and you have hit points and armor there is a Yep, there's armor that will soak up a certain amount of damage. 
and there's you know ranges on weapons whether it's close or reach or uh whatever but i was going to say something super profound and it just went right out of my head it was something about oh you could also take it's sort of advantage but for damage mm. so you know if you're hitting but you're not hitting hard it may be roll two dice for damage take the lower uh, you know that sort of thing so it it tries to balance out the the fiction with sort of a less lethal rules mechanic to let to give the characters the chance to do things yeah yeah and the other thing that is expressed in the game which i like and can be translated to other games are what they call fronts mm. so fronts are the overarching plots that the characters are likely coming up against so they give an example of fronts like the horde or a nefarious organization, or a mystical location. And those are the grand plots that are driving the adventures. And within the fronts, you have uh, parts of the fronts are the trouble. These are the how the, the fronts express themselves in the game world, right? The horde is there. It's moving toward civilization. So you're going to have advanced scouting groups that are the trouble at this point. And within those fronts, you can also create moves. So unless something is done to stop a front from continuing forward, then the game master can take the move of uh, whatever, whatever the whatever the game master wants to express. But it it's likely right, right. Uh, scouting party attacks village. Uh, if it's a nefarious location, it might be pilgrims kidnapped by cultists. Right. And so these things happen and keep going on. The world keeps moving until the characters do something in the story to stop that from happening. Yeah, it's a, it's a neat concept. Mm -hmm. And so you can use that in in any D&D game. And it sort of reminds me of Gumshoe, it, it, you know, in that sense where think three steps ahead <laughs> And that gives you some fun to play with down the road and gives your characters choices about which way to go, how deep to dig into each problem that you're presenting. Do they want to follow this one thread all the way through or do they want to go two steps in this direction and then move off and try to deal with this other front, this other problem or this other line of inquiry in terms of gumshoe? Yeah, and, and it it also ties into the the idea of uh, fate and its aspects, right? Where it talks about developing mm -hmm. organizations for the setting and and assigning aspects to them. It's that similar kind of concept of thinking through what are the major entities that are in play, and how do they drive the experience? Which then is there because that facilitates you running a very open game, right? You don't have to write out a whole adventure. You can just be thinking along the lines of what these fronts should be doing naturally in response to what the characters are doing. And of course, they've got their agendas and those are going to play out over time, but it's really driven by what the characters are doing. Yep. They give a great example of this in the back of the book where it talks about adventure conversion. And they take a an adventure that you and I reviewed when we mm -hmm. were doing our old adventure review against the cult of the reptile god. 
They don't name the adventure specifically, but it's early in the description. You you recognize it, and they even say reptile god at some point. But it shows how to turn that adventure into these fronts and troubles and expressions of the front that the characters get to interact with and plot points that move forward until the characters interact. So uh, there's a it's a great way to show how to put together not just a dungeon world game, but any adventure yeah. in any role-playing game using these methods. Awesome. Last but not least, you can get this role-playing game right now at Drive-Thru RPG by just searching on Dungeon World. Or you can go to dungeon-world.com where they have links to not just the game, but also the print publication and free material, free supplemental material like playbooks that you can get uh, for your games. Yeah, and I find it fascinating to go back to Apocalypse World and look at its its, its basis mm-hmm. because it is so different uh, uh, in, in how it approaches things from the typical D&D heroic aspects. So I think that's worth looking at. Yep. You can get uh, Apocalypse World at uh, at Drive Through RPG as well. So with that, we will shut this mother down. But before we do, I want to say thank you to everybody who's listening out there. Thank you too to our patrons, our Master of Dungeons supporters. We appreciate your support more than we can say. Our Master of Realms supporters. Get a shout out in our show notes and our masters of the multiverse. They get a thank you right now. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Andy Edmonds, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly. Falcon Neal, Chance Russo at Dragarusso, Krishna C M O N S E, Joe Tyler, Matthias Valero at Twin Portals, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you, and thank you to our listeners. If you like the show, please do consider supporting us via our Patreon at patreon.com slash masteringdnd. And if you get a chance, also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever that you listen to this show. You can also go onto YouTube and subscribe to see our beautiful faces as we talk. Speaking of beautiful faces, Teos, where can people find you? Oh, find me at alphastream.org. Read all about the D&D Summit and all that has mm-hmm. taken place there. Uh, you can find me on Mastodon and uh, sometimes on Twitter. Where can we find you, Sean? Uh, I'm still on Twitter at Sean Merwin, and the podcast is there at Mastering D&D. Uh, the show is also on Mastodon at Dice Camp, and I'm on Mastodon at Tabletop Social. Our community can ask us questions via Patreon or via the YouTube channel called Mastering Dungeons. So, Teos, now that we are done recording... And we are all dungeoned out. What are we going to do now? Uh, Well, we're going to describe our moves one after the other endlessly so that the monsters never get to go. Maybe even other players. It'll just be our character doing everything all the time, like Holga, just 
constantly acting. Never. That is great until you continue to roll a seven or less and get the only one getting attacked. That's and I'm going to run away from the crocodilian because they like to eat. 